0: Hey, gang, thank you for listening to the April edition of Deep Dive. And this month, we are bringing back one of our favorite guests, Ian Burden, to discuss the recording and creation of one of the most important albums of all time, 1981's Dare from the Human League. As most of you know, this thing kind of changed everything, at least in terms of bringing the new wave and synth pop and those kinds of bands that were tinkering with synthesizers versus guitars into the mainstream and onto the pop charts. Don't You Want Me, Love Action, that's the kind of stuff that came from this album and it was a game changer. Now Ian is a wonderful man, but he's very modest. And so he doesn't, he sort of downplays some of the like importance or you know game changing nature of this album, but yet it's there. We know that it's there. We also debate a topic that I feel very strongly about and I've brought it up on here before. To me, what punk rock, if you're going by the, if you're defining punk rock by the spirit of it, the DIY spirit, people who are untrained musicians taking what's available to them, messing around with it until they find a song or a sound that resonates with other people, which is what punk rock is, that synth pop sound of the early 80s, that's just as punk as those, as people like the Ramones or the Stooges or anyone else who are banging away on guitars in their garage. It's the same spirit that it is applied to both things. It's just that everyone thinks of punk rock as meaning actual guitars and drums. Now it does, of course, I love that too. But, bec- but because people, I guess, view synthesizers as being you know, lesser than, it doesn't get the same kind of respect that uh, you know, the guitar-driven punk rock do- gets. And I feel like that is unfair. So uh, I get to kind of soapbox it here a little bit. But anyway, I hope you will enjoy this conversation. I love it. I love the Human League. Ian's one of our best guests ever. Anyway, enjoy. Do you hear the other singles off this album hardly ever? Or is it almost always Don't You Want Me? It's almost
1: always Don't Mm You Want Me. I think maybe occasionally I've heard Love Action. Which is pleasing, of course. Yeah, of course. I get, I get publishing on that one. Yeah, I know. I know. That's <laughs> yeah. great. Obviously, I've heard songs every now and then. Sometimes when when I'm walking around the supermarket, you know, it's, <laughs> sure. it's, it's, you know, particularly at Christmas time. Uh-huh.
0: And you know which song I'm talking about. So. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, good. I uh, One of the things you mentioned when we were chatting, I think, is that you had not... You didn't own this out. Did you own it on vinyl or something? Or you had to go buy it? You don't even have a copy of this. I've got a vinyl copy.
1: And, I mean, a, a long time ago when uh, when it was... Virgin put it out as a CD a few years later. So I went and bought a copy. Uh-huh. I don't know, somewhere along the line, somebody... You know, people want memorabilia and things. For, um, there was a charity auction. So I signed cd and gave it to them i seem to remember they got less for it than i paid for it <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of you know it wasn't a big deal charity
0: it was like yeah. a little level thing you know right Yeah. still that's amazing yeah. oh wow okay well um i wanted to ask you specifically about sheffield because bands from sheffield you know being in the states we don't We don't know. Bands from Sheffield seem to always make a big deal about being from Sheffield. Like you guys, Heaven 17, ABC, these kinds of bands. Uh, That something about the steel industry and the sort of blue-collar industrialness of it all is what was inspiring or sparking their drive to understand keyboards or technology or those kinds of sounds. Did you feel any of that as well? I mean, is this really as dominant an influence as you guys make it sound i'm not sure to what
1: extent that view comes from people in the bands i think a lot of it came from the coverage you know in uh, media i think a lot of it was from journalism but i I do think that as, as an industrial city yes it must have had some impact it was also very economically depressed at the time i arrived in sheffield as an undergraduate, I wasn't I wasn't from there, uh, and I was not uh, I was not a city person, I'm very much a country boy. But I had been listening to stuff, particularly uh, what was coming out of Germany, with bands like Cannes and Noi, Neu- and obviously Kraftwerk. Mm-hmm. And arriving in Sheffield and finding that there were like-minded people, such as um, the guys in Cabaret Voltaire. Mm-hmm. They were the first other musicians that I, that I met in Sheffield and engaged with. And they, you know, they did talk occasionally about uh, how the sounds of an industrial city did impact upon them. A lot of, you know, a lot of big
0: noises coming out of steelworks. Yeah. So you not growing up, you didn't grow up there then. You didn't have like a dad who went to work every day at a steel mill or something like that.
1: No, my father was a... An officer in the Royal Air
0: Force.
1: Mm. Uh, coincidentally
0: so was Joe Callis' father. Oh. Okay. Okay. Now also then another thing I always read is the the heavy influence of Roxy music. Or at least just I probably, you know, young aspiring musicians seeing a band like Roxy ascend to the heights that they did empower feels seems to empower them to go want to go do the same. You probably liked Roxy music, but maybe not. Didn't feel as close an affinity to them because they weren't your hometown band. I'm assuming. I don't. I don't know where Roxy came from. I don't. Um, huh, were they Were they locals, or was it just was it stylistically that they were influencing people?
1: I think stylistically. I don't okay. think geog- geography came into it. I think okay. that. I think that Brian Ferry was from the northeast of England. Uh, uh, I think other members uh, were probably more from London. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, certainly, I mean, the standout character in there was, of course, Brian Eno yeah. with, with his synthesizers. My recollection of it, hearing Roxy Music for the first time was wondering where on earth it came
0: from. Yeah.
1: <laughs> really, it's very, very rare mm-hmm. that you hear some music
0: that's not like anything you've heard, heard before. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, so Roxy Music is a rare example of that. It's, they still have that effect on me. I, I'm fairly new to them. I, I started paying close attention, I don't know, five years ago maybe. I realized I didn't know enough about them and I should know more. And uh, it just, yeah, it sounds otherworldly. How they discovered this sound and stumbled on it, you know, who knows how people do this? It's amazing. Well,
1: yeah, I think, I mean, we, we worked with um, Chris Thomas, the producer. He, he did us. I think at least three or four mm-hmm. of the early Roxy albums, and I sat with him once at, at a piano in the studio, and he showed me how to write a Brian Ferry song, <laughs> which was <laughs> if you take a typical a typical chord with uh, with sort of root note, um, third and fifth, and um, but Brian Ferry just used to play with two fingers, so he left out the middle note, mm. which is the third. Now it's the third which determines whether or not a chord is a minor chord or a major chord. Hmm. So if you don't put that in, it's neither. And that meant that the other members of the band could interpret it either way. Got it. Wow. And that may be too. I don't know if that's too technical for this. No, I don't
0: think so. I think that's really fascinating. Again, how do people stumble on their sound? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a limitation of ability. In fact, it's probably often a limitation of ability.
1: Yes, and the incorporation of the synthesizers into it in a way which was very diff- different from, you know, the sort of um, <clears throat> Emerson, Lake and Palmer approach, yeah, yeah. which is basically it's just a keyboard instrument, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Because, of course, uh, Brian Eno was doing sort of strange sequenced type things and, you know,
0: strange noises. Right, right. Yeah. I was thinking we- about this thing called meat whistle. Were you involved at all in, like, Meat Whistle apparently was some kind of, like, creative space? I yes. Don't know, it was, like uh, a Boys uh, and yeah. Girls Club or something like that for creative was, people?
1: Yes. I think it was it was inclined towards theatre more than anything oh, okay. else. Okay. Of course, theatre combines everything, doesn't it, really? yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, I wasn't involved with it. I know of it. Glenn Gregory, mm. uh, I think, was a part of that. And a couple mm. of other people I knew in Sheffield,
0: yeah. The Crazy Daisy is the is the the uh, the name of the club where Phil discovered the girls, and um, it sounds like this is sort of the local hotspot. Did you ever go hang out at the Crazy Daisy, or do you remember nights there dancing or anything like that? No, no, I wasn't I wasn't a nightclub. Though so, that's so funny you say that because yeah. as soon as that question came out of my mouth, I thought I, I don't see Ian being the nightclub type guy. No, I'm I'm a pub person. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So not a lot of night, you know, late nights dancing at the Crazy Daisy and all that kind of stuff. Not no, I, don't, I I don't dance.
1: I'm I'm very tall uh-huh. and kind of, uh, with long limbs, yeah. and I I don't know if you're familiar with Faulty Towers. Oh yeah, of, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, I kind of look like
0: him when I'm dancing. Yeah.
2: So.
0: <laughs> I think. Tall, I, how tall are you? I'm six foot two. Uh, I'm six foot I, eight. You know, I'm even worse <laughs> when I dance, yeah. I don't dance. Yeah, no, no, don't. <laughs> no? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. Um, something else. So uh, I think I was reading in, in an interview that Phil gave, either at the time or sometime later, that the edict of the band at that time was no standard instrumentation. Like, we're yes. going to go completely in, in new, futuristic technology-based directions. Was this a very stated, like everyone in the group knew this? Like, that's our plan? Oh, yes.
1: yes, yes. No, that that was pretty much a manifesto. Uh-huh. That we have only synthesizers and voices. OK.
0: One thing I've been thinking about, what separated the human league? Because we're going to get into this in just a second. There's so many accolades tied to this album specifically, is I think what you guys were doing was you were taking, like you'd mentioned, craftwork. But you were turning what they were doing into pop songs, which I don't know that anyone else was really doing at the time. You know, Kraftwerk didn't have straightforward pop songs. Even the first he- uh, Heaven 17 album, Penthouse and Pavement, is not, I mean, it's a good album, but it's kind. Of, it's still a little weird. You know, it's not, a, there's yeah. not a lot of pop songs on there. Gary Newman, which I know was sort of, um, you know, he was sort of heavily influencing all you guys. Everything synth-based at that time was like, he was the godfather of it but his stuff's kind of colder and frosty and icy you know but here's human league with applying pop sensibilities to this technology i think we talked about this a little bit before while this is happening i don't think you or the band are really aware that you're doing you're putting a new angle on this kind of music are you or are you i don't think we're no it, it, it i don't think it was very
1: conscious to, to be Putting it together as songs. Um, I, um, the thing about Gary Newman, the Human League had been going a long time before Gary Newman at least true. a couple Good of point. years. So he wasn't really an influence. But I think what happened was that when Joe Callis, in particular, and myself engaged with Philip and Adrian, with in, in terms of putting music together, Joe and I instinctively were structured things in such a way that they could could easily become
0: songs. I
1: was always very conscious. I mean, the first thing I I did was uh, the sound of the crowd. with Philip on that and as, as I was going along explaining to him what I was doing and saying to him well the reason it changes from that to that is because I admit, imagine that bit as a verse and then that bit as a sort of chorus and the the, the um, Human League in its first incarnation on the previous two albums had never really worked in that way Martin and Ian had tended to put down an instrumental and then invite philip to find something to sing over the top of it but then when you listen to it philip has an instinct there in what he's doing lyrically and vocally to split things into sections regardless of what the music was doing
0: what i was uh, i read that when the band brought what they had i believe to martin he sort of Dismissed, sound of the crowd. That the earlier version or the demo version. and I assume you were working on that. He just was like, "This is there's not there's nothing here. This isn't good enough." And so they had to completely kind of restructure the song from the ground up. Do you remember this? And did you take that personally? No, we didn't restructure it. We didn't change anything. We uh, we recorded it because we
1: uh, had put it together on our, on our little eight track tape machine in Sheffield. Which was not really sufficiently high standard for recording, uh, for a professional standard of recording, and you know Philip and myself and Joe Callis etc. We're not we were not recording engineers, and that was Martin's objection was to the standard of the recording. We had originally hoped he would remix what we had done, or, or uh, you know, or add some sort of gloss to what we'd done, uh, but he said no. We're going to start again from scratch but it was exactly the same piece of music nothing okay. was yeah nothing was changed it's, it's all the same arrangement and structure
0: yeah well i read this book years ago called rip it up and start again um by simon reynolds it's a great book for anyone who wants to check it out and i went back to it to get ready to talk to you i wanted to read uh, this one particular paragraph it says the sound of the crowd was the first fruit of Oki's songwriting partnership with new human league member ian burden Formerly the bassist in an experimental Sheffield band, Graph. uh, Burden was an unlikely writer of pop hits. But "Sound of the Crowd" was an unlikely hit, and this is a quote of Phil's: "I still reckon that song is one of the maddest records that's ever got to the into the top 20. The whole thing runs on tom toms, but they're synth toms, and it's got very odd screaming sounds." End quote. It also has a foreboding dub feel of bass pressure and cold, cavernous space, which came from Burden's being a reggae fiend. Were you a reggae fiend? Uh, yes, I was. I loved dub reggae. Good.
1: Yeah. Okay, yes. yeah. The tom-tom thing that Philip's talking about there, that was him. That was the starting point. Ah. It, it's a very, very peculiar rhythm, and he'd programmed it up on the System 100. So it's purely synthesized. Uh, this sort of boom boom boom, 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 It's really odd. I had no idea what what to do with it. I just thought it was very odd. Uh-huh. But somehow, uh-huh. you know, a couple of riffs came out as I was, I was sort of jamming along with it. Yeah, and we, yes, I suppose it does have a, a bit of a reggae huh. influence in there. I had, but the I reason it, but... Yeah, I think the reason it's odd I think Oki can attribute that to himself, really, because of just starting off with that peculiar little rhythm. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah. Phil did all the lyrics, right? On Sound of the Crowd? Well, I think, didn't he write most of the lyrics on pretty much every song? Pretty, uh, no, I don't think oh, so. Really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, did you contribute lyrics then to Sound of the Crowd? Uh, Sound of the Crowd
1: I did, but not intentionally. What, what happened was that um, I knew how the vocal parts should go, Uh, sort of melodically and in order to explain to Philip um, how to do that you see it's really horrible if you if you try and explain something by singing la 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 Uh la it's always going to sound naff so one morning I was having a having you know drinking a cup of coffee and I scribbled scribbled down some sort of stream of consciousness words just quite randomly just so that I had something to sing to Philip okay but it sounded better than la la la. <laughs> um, he then uh, wrote the chorus part, which is the get around uh-huh. town. Uh-huh. Old, you know, that. Um, add your voice. What was it? Add your voice to the sound of the crowd. Yeah, town. right. So he, he wrote that part. But then he kept these um, strange stream of consciousness lyrics that uh. i written in the verses i hadn't intended them to be used but he seemed to quite like them so yeah
0: who um when i'm always curious about little flourishes like the ah 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 woo part you know i can't sing it or you you know what i mean anyone listening knows uh those little flourishes are they things that when people are writing songs like you know at their kitchen table with their coffee Oh, I thought it would be kind of fun if the song did this ah 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 woo thing right here. Or is that a is that a Martin decision when Martin's kind of putting everything together and producing it? He's like ah, oh, this little flourish should be fun. Where do little ideas like that come from? Because I believe they're the little they're the bits of magic that people remember. You know, they're a little outside the box. They're different. That's that's
1: the beauty of collaboration. When you have a couple two people such as Philip and myself throwing in ideas from different angles. Yeah. So I yeah. left a little gap before the next verse began and left a gap there thinking, I'll think of something to put in there. But then instead of thinking of something to put in there, Philip came in yeah. and put that RRR vocal thing in there. Okay. So, That's uh,
0: And I thought, yeah, okay, I can stop thinking about it now. He's got a good idea. For it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Well, look, I wanted to read some of kind of the historic accolades that Dare has received over the years. First of all, around 1990, Rolling Stone magazine counted down the top 100 albums of the 80s. Dare was ranked number 77, which is, I thought, even at the time, I remember being, uh, feeling like was, well, good for them because Rolling Stone historically is just so snobby about recognizing bands like the Human League, And so for them to uh, include you on that list, I was so grateful. Because it's not something they normally do. In fact, speaking of snobby, uh, I want to read a quick review by Robert Criscow. Um, are you familiar with Robert Criscow? I, I don't know the name. No. Okay, he's is he, a.
1: Is he Rolling Stone guy?
0: No, he's well. He's probably contributed to Rolling Stone. He's the Trouser mm-hmm. Press. If you've ever heard of the Trouser Press, yes, I he, so, have. Yes. Okay, so he's been a. He's been a music critic for, boy, I don't know, 40-something years. I mean, he's a pretty well-respected kind of... up. He's one of the greats, I guess. And he's known specifically for for, uh, kind of dissecting his reviews into very short, pithy, you know, paragraphs, basically. And he's often quite snobby as well about what he likes and doesn't like. And he gave Human League Dare a B-minus. And I just wonder. I sometimes include his reviews on these deep dives that we do. He says, It's not flesh-and-blood chauvinism that puts me off Britannia's hookiest dance synth monster. I'll boogie to the right machine. I can even imagine fucking a cyborg. But while the cyborg of my dreams would keep it light, not to, not act too impressed with the tricks stored in his or her memory, League spokesman Philip Oakey, comes on like three kinds of pompous jerk. The only time I light up is when Suzanne Sully takes her verse on Don't You Want Me, which I recommend to Quarter Flash, who were a female fronted sort of new wave band at the time. Take of that what you will, I sometimes I think Robert is a genius and sometimes I think he's way off the mark and I have to say that's one of those times.
1: Well he's a human being and uh... (laughs) We all have our likes and dislikes. That's true. And if, if, if,
0: if anything can be classed as subjective, it, it's music. You know? Yeah, very true. That's a very yeah. healthy way to look at that. You're one of the people. Good for you. I like that. Yeah. I
1: mean, I, I think sometimes with, with journalists, I mean, no disrespect to him, but sometimes I think it's an awkward job to take on reviewing or being a music critic. Yeah. When you've got to bring your own subjectivity to it. See, I have the luxury of if I don't like a particular music, you know, an, an album or a song or or a genre, right, I just right. simply don't. I simply don't have to listen to it, and that's the end of it. You know, right. I don't. I don't have to comment. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like I'm not a big fan of, say, for example, country and western music. Mm. But then I think it has an audience, so leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Let it be for them. You know, Yeah. Mm. doesn't matter what you think about it. Um, no, it doesn't. No, yeah, it's... I like that. Um, the Guardian listed their top 50 albums that changed everything. And Beer uh, Dare, I'm sorry, was number 46. I'll just read this real quick. It's just a quick thing. Until Dare, synthesizers meant solemnity. Phil Oakey's reinvention of the group as chirpy popsters Complete with two flailing girl next door vocalists, feminized electronica. Without this and Oki's lopsided haircut, squads of new romantics and synth pop acts would have been lost. Was the haircut ever uh, a thing? Like were you guys ever having to discuss this? Was he I'm sure he was aware that he was provoking people with this haircut? The only conversation I had with Philip about it
1: was he readily admitted that it was a gimmick. We, of course, were much more immersed in the music, the pop music of the UK, more so than you know what what we heard from the USA. And a, a real thing in the UK was was haircuts. We, you, yeah. you, the, the, um, artists were very identifiable by their haircut and their voice. Uh, so we had such as Mark Bolan and T Rex. So he had this corkscrew haircut. We, of course, had David Bowie with the spiky carrot coloured hair, you know, yeah. Yeah. and these sort of things made people instantly recognizable. Look at a of seagulls. Yeah. And I think, you know, Philip, I think, I mean, I can only paraphrase him. He said, but, you know, pop stars have unique haircuts. So he did it
0: deliberately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was it was a contrivance. Yeah, yeah I figured. Okay. Uh, Dare was the 12th highest rated uh, album of 1981 in Rolling Stone and the 111th greatest album of all time in the NME. was. You guys were on Virgin Records. Did you ever interface with Richard Branson? I would imagine you must have.
1: We didn't really engage with him. He was not very hands-on with the mm-hmm. music side of things. He had um, a, a distant cousin called Simon Draper, who was, he'd appointed as the managing director of the record label. They'd kind of co-founded the record label, And Simon Draper was the very, very clever and very likable head of the record, label, And uh, and so our
0: our engagement was primarily with him rather rather than with Richard. Okay. Um, Let's get into some of the songs. The first track, Things That Dreams Are Made Of. One thing I was... I mean, I've listened to this album a million times, but uh, something I was noticing very distinctly this time is that the girls are not as pronounced as you might think. There are a couple of tracks where they don't either... they don't factor in at all or they factor in, you know, very briefly or something like that. I wondered if you guys were still sort of figuring out how to work them in you know, to the sound and and what you wanted to do with them. They would become such so integral shortly after this, but it sounds like they were still sort of baby stepping their way into the group. Would would that have been accurate? Yeah, possibly. The running order of the
1: songs on the album is not the doesn't conform to the chronology of the writing point. <laughs> together of, of the songs. So the things that dreams have made of and I am the law were songs that Philip and Adrian had been working on prior to myself and Joe Callis becoming involved, and obviously prior to John and Susan becoming involved in
0: it. Mm. That may have something to do okay. with it. Okay, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. They were from before yeah. that. Who is Norman Wisdom? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a very British thing. He was a,
1: a comic actor. Okay. Uh, he, he did a lot of movies, very very British type movies, set, usually set in the north of England or you know some such place. And he was, he was kind of a sort of Charlie Chaplin figure. Ah. Okay. In, in, okay. in that he was the little man who was trodden on or trodden on by everybody around him. Um, Adrian was a particularly big fan of of Norman Wisdom. Okay. Uh, and that's that song, "Things That Dreams Are Made Of." The lyrics are Adrian's lyrics, and it's essentially a list of all his favourite things. It's a bit like you know that song in *The Sound of Music*—you know, "Here are a few, here are, right. here are a few <laughs> of my favourite things." You know, but instead of um,
0: instead of uh, uh, Julie Andrews, it's Philip Oakey singing it. <laughs> that's right. I love it. It's such a. Uh, it's such a. It just it belies such in such innocence you know there's ice cream there's the ramones there's the need to have two or three friends so specific but it's that it's the specificity that makes it special you know no it is very very aging he was a fan
1: of norman wisdom the ramones ice cream of course in fact he was an ice cream salesman for a short was he really like
0: like on an ice cream truck or yeah
1: uh, yeah, ice cream truck. As you, We call it an ice cream van here, and it goes around the streets yeah. with these chime, chimes going yeah. so that all kids know and go running out to buy an ice cream. Yeah, Adrian actually did that as a job.
0: Oh, that's he? great. Yeah. Oh, mm. that's so great. Okay, great color. See, this is why we do this, Ian. We would never have known that otherwise. That's so fun. Um, okay, yeah. open your heart. Yeah.
1: No, that's when Joe Callis
0: arrived. Yes. Open your heart. A key point. Major change there. Um, I say that. What exactly? Other, I mean, I've been reading some other than he plays the guitar, which, you know, guitar, a guitarist in a band like yours isn't integral, but he seemed to have some kind of an, a better understanding of chord progressions or maybe pop hooks or something like that. What, what made him special? I think it's the chords. You see,
1: we'd already put out the sound of the crowd. And I'd continued with what I assumed was the human league way of doing things, which was all monophonic synthesizers. So if you listen to the sound of the crowd, everything on there is a monophonic sound. There are no chords on it. Joe came along and started working on this piece that became Open Your Heart. And I noticed that Philip and Adrian were standing around nodding approvingly you know, and going, Oh, that's good and I thought, Oh, they're not they're not um objecting to the use of chords. So that's that was and I have to thank Joe Callas for bringing that into it because then the next thing I was working on, which was love action, I thought, Brilliant, I know I now know that I'm allowed to play chords.
2: So yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Um how how responsible do you believe was Martin Rushant for uh, not just the creation of this album in particular, but you know, helping you guys find a path forward. It seems like he was—he was the man, you know. Oh, he was fundamental to it for yeah, a number yeah.
1: of reasons. First and foremost, his engineering skills. He knew how to record synthesizers in a way that was really, really crisp. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Really nicely polished. Um, There were not a lot of people and not a lot of engineers around with experience of recording synthesizers, but he he focused his attention on how to do it and do it better. And the other major thing was he managed the sessions really well. You know, instead of six of us arguing about which song are we going to work on next... Martin would say, right, today we're going to dig out the tapes for blah-de-blah-de-blah, blah, blah, whichever uh-huh. particular song. So, and so there was no arguing between the band members, which was brilliant. So I, he also um, refused to work on any particular song for anything more than a, you know, a relatively small amount of time. Huh. You know, work on something. If the ideas were flowing, we, we'd crack on. And then as soon as it started
0: started to slow up, he said, right, we'll put the, that tape away. Let's get out another song, you know? Was that based on, was his experience such that working too much overthink it or complicated the matters or, you know, there's a simplicity that is that is lost when people are just left to overthink things for too much time? Yes, I think that happens, yeah. yeah. By doing it that way, Martin always kept it fresh,
1: you know? Yeah. He'd, you dig out a tape and you think, well, I haven't heard this for a couple of weeks now, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. uh, you suddenly hear what's wrong with it or, you know, or you
0: it sounds better than you thought it was. You know, that that's that kind of thing happens. Right. Do you um I think I read somewhere that Suzanne said that this song was really difficult to sing. That apparently uh, they don't back in the day because I, I don't know that you guys did it live very often or if you did, it was kind of complicated. Do you remember this? It's in a much higher register than Philip would normally sing in, so
1: perhaps it's a key signature okay. that they're not all, they're not happy with singing in. Um, it's different different when you're in a studio, you, you know, you can you can work on it. And but singing live, if you're not if you're not singing in a range which is comfortable for you, it can be difficult. because yeah. um, yeah. so, you know, no, nobody is is a
0: trained singer, you yeah. know, especially like, the girls. yeah (laughs) but that's that's their charm you know is how uh untrained they are that's what's great about them yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: i mean that's that's the
1: story of rock and roll isn't it really it really is yeah. yeah and
0: that you know you mentioned i think we may have talked about this a little bit before if we didn't i've mentioned this before is that i one of the things i i take a little personally When people kind of, uh, to me, what you guys were doing was a different branch of punk rock. You know, if we give if we give the punks all this credit for, you know, not knowing how to play their instruments, not being trained musicians, but picking up a guitar, bashing out a couple of chords, writing a song that's two and a half minutes long and having it mean something. Why is that? why is what you guys were doing not also punk because it's just a different instrument you know you're you've the same DIY let's figure this out we don't know what this thing does we're not trained musicians but we're gonna tinker with it till we find something applies to synth based new wave music as well it's just that you're doing it on a keyboard and they're doing it on a guitar so yeah. the, the same ethos is there does that make sense we absolutely
1: fell in line with that ethos of the, of the punk thing, even if we weren't actually punks. Right, the, fact right. that, the fact that it opened it up to people such as ourselves to be able to do our own thing. I mean, there was a period when, with synthesizers, you, you had to be, you know, multi millionaire rock stars like Keith Emerson, or, or you had to be in Pink Floyd in order yeah, to be able yeah. to afford to buy the equipment. Punk came along at the sort of period in time when much more affordable synthesizers were coming onto the market. Mm-hmm. And that sort of sound of, and was, you know, they were monophonic synthesizers. So people like, and Philip and Adrian, perfect examples of people who could get a sound out of something and play with one finger. Right. And, and do something that sounded good. Yeah. Without having to spend years in the bedroom strumming it away
0: at a guitar or something, you know, right? So yeah, the same. The same thought process is there for when those two are doing that, as there is for you know the Ramones to play a couple of chords on their guitars. Mm. It's it's yeah. it's just different instruments. It's the same. Yeah. Comes from the same place, you know. And yet, one at least, if you at least in terms of see, this is what I love about Britain is that Britain always. Got it more than America did. America seems to, and it's because I believe our minds and our musical tastes and academic understanding of music is so formed by Rolling Stone magazine, is that we, we tended to not see the value in that. That was lesser than, you know, bands like you guys that were tinkering with, with keyboards are less artistically relevant than those who are bashing away on our guitar. And I think that's unfair. You know, yeah. yeah, no, it's something we would have completely disagreed
1: with the idea that the ability or the, the facility to make music should be restricted to people who are l- like maestros at playing instruments and have access to hugely expensive equipment. Yeah. You know, we're the belief yeah. that what really matters is your ideas, yeah. and whatever by ever mean whatever means are available to you to put your ideas down then you should be able to do it. And I think that's carried on now. If you look at today, with almost a piece of free software, you can sit in your bedroom and make a piece of music. You know, I yeah. think that's certainly great and brilliant. And the punk scene in the UK really was was the, the foundation of that attitude. Uh, you know, anyone who's got an idea should be able to do it. Yeah. We came into it, of course, we, we're still in that era when studio time was hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have the funding from a record label, it was very, very difficult to progress in any way. So we have to thank punk for coming along and say, look, we're going to whack out music on three chords. Right. You know? And and without any regard for whether we're singing well, right. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. uh, And actually, what you get is something good out of it. And because of the success of that, then of course the record labels were much more open to people like the Human League coming along, you know, saying, "Well, we've got a couple of synths and we've never done this before, but let us let us have a chance," you know. Yeah, yeah,
0: I agree. It bothers me that uh, that it's marginalized when it shouldn't be, or viewed Mm. as lesser than. Uh, Mm. Okay, well, we talked about Sound of the Crowd. Let's move on to Darkness. song apparently and um, I was curious if this being if for lack of a better word sort of a dark song hence the title when you guys are working on a song like this everything else is so bright you know about most of it anyway this and I am the law are obviously, and seconds to some degree are both are all three sort of darker songs is it like acting where, you know, an actor in order to prepare for a really heavy scene has to kind of get in a very somber, heavy mind frame? Are are you like that as a musician or is it just, it's all just chords and effects and it doesn't, you don't have to like prepare yourself mentally to do a darker song?
1: Darkness was, again, it was Joe Callis putting together ideas, chords and, you know, the bass parts and stuff. And as he was doing it, um, Adrian was looking over his shoulder, listening, getting ideas together. That is very much a, a, almost a conventional songwriting partnership. One guy does the music and the other guy writes the words. The words, again, are very much Adrian. I think it's a reference to him thinking about horror movies and about keeping him awake at night and um, stuff. Um, whether Joe put them I don't think Joe put the music together with that sort of mood in mind he was just making a piece of music and then Adrian allied the words to what he felt the mood of the music was Mm. and then of course it's handed to Philip to sing it so then he he would then of course as the singer bring his his way of interpreting
0: it right Philip Oakey, that is has that sort of natural darkness to his voice anyway which is I think again, going back to these little doses of pixie dust that make Human League special, he's he could he's got a voice of that has that sort of tone to it, but he doesn't use it that way. it's he uses it on bright pop songs, and that dichotomy of sort of this darker voice mixed with the bright synthy sound is again one of these flourishes that separates human League from the rest, if you ask me. You know, you like we've said, you you make do with what you got. Phil's got the voice he has, but he writes the songs he does. And this marriage of the two makes you guys special. And it's different, yeah. you know? No, it's, it's just, it's all a very, very happy accident. You know? Yeah, that's so it. Philip, but
1: you, you write something that sounds quite, you, in your mind, is quite cheerful is it, musically. And then Philip puts that very straight baritone voice on it. Uh, Which which will darken it a bit, you
0: know Yeah, Uh, Um, it's it it sets up a quite a lot of irony in there doesn't it? Right. it's not it's not a voice with a lot of range, but it's so distinctive that um, You know, it's just always such a welcome sound I think (laughs) anywhere Okay, do or die. There's a bass solo in do or die. Are you the one playing that solo?
1: Everything on Do or Die was played by me. Really? Yes, everything. It started off as as an idea I was messing around with. I originally, and I'd written words for it. It, All of that got scrapped. It was a song, it was called Love and Dancing, which is where where the the follow on album title came from. It it wasn't working really well, but the instrumental side of it seemed to be happening. We had we scrapped the lyric idea. Philip did try singing it, and it just wasn't really happening. But we'd done instrumental versions of two songs previously, so like the sound of the crowd and uh, love action. I think we had already done sort of remix versions of them to, to, to go on B sides, and that again this comes from the dub reggae oh. um, field. And because uh, Do or Die then wasn't working really as a song, but we pushed on with it. And I just kept, just ideas just kept falling out, kept falling out of the keyboards. Every time I went to the keyboard, I'd get something else that would fit with it. It was more a matter of um, selecting which things to leave in, you know, and, and leaving a lot of stuff out of it uh, because I just had too many ideas for it but it was it was being put together at one stage as if it was an instrumental
2: hmm.
1: ready to be used in that sort of dub remix ah. sense so for a while I think it was going to be an instrumental for that purpose and then Philip suddenly came in one day with with those lyrics and this whole new vocal idea and suddenly then it was okay game on you know
0: yeah yeah it's got so many odd sound effects going on, you know the bleep. The, I can't even do them. I mean, you know what yeah. I mean. There's just all again these little flourishes. You're saying those are you. Those are you just having, you know, a rush of creativity. I guess. Oh, this yeah. would sound cool. I'll put this little bleep <laughs> in here and this little doodle over there, and it all will make sense. Yeah, yeah. It 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 was just something that it seemed that whatever.
1: Sound I programmed up Martin Russian would say oh that, that's good what about if you change it this way and that way in terms of sound but every part I played just seemed to work yeah. so yeah. yeah I think okay. that was instrumentally that was that was really me and Martin Russian sort of you know uh, putting on our programming and editing brains and um,
0: yeah okay. it, was good it was good fun that Maybe, uh, maybe that's why it's the longest song on the album, five, almost five and a half minutes long is probably because it was just so full of ideas and yeah. um, nobody wanted to lose some of these ideas. They they worked, yeah. you know, no, it was like that. We it was an awful lot of
1: ideas which were left off, off of it, you know. And uh, uh, when you're working on, um, you yeah, we were working on magnetic tape and you've got twenty four tracks to play with but we always had one track we needed for a synchronization track so we only had 23 to work with so at some point you've got to say well we have to leave that off you know or a, no, a slightly better idea comes along so let's get rid of that bit and put this in instead yeah. you know that's how it went okay yeah.
0: I think Phil said somewhere that this song is about a girl taken over by a poltergeist like something in Carrie do you the movie Carrie do you does that ring a bell to you I'll take his word for it, John. <laughs> I never really asked him about
1: it. I just thought lyrically it sounded great, yeah, regardless yeah. of the actual meaning. I mean, that's the thing about songwriting as well. Is it's you can't just use any words. They have to, they have to fit the scan of your melody, and they have to sound right. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just said, I thought, well, whatever it's about, it just sounds great. So yeah. let
0: him go. let him get on with it. You know. Sure does. Sure. Uh, okay, that's the end of side two. I, speaking of sides, I was curious if um, how you guys felt, how you, I guess specifically, uh, felt about the cover of Dare. It's It was based off of a cover of Vogue magazine that Phil saw with the headline, I believe, that said Dare. And um, he thought that looked really cool. And so it's got these bright blue and pink colors on it. It's got... Phil's face, very close up, with the lipstick and the eyeshadow and all that kind of stuff. Were you uh, a fan of the cover? Did you care one way or the other? I thought it was very striking. I, I don't know if I've ever liked it or disliked it. Mm-hmm. I just,
1: I just thought it's very striking. It will work. Imagine, you know, in the days when you had vinyl albums stacked in the racks in shops, and you were right. flicking. it, it really did stand out. But it was. It was um, <clears throat> it was an absolute copy of that Vogue magazine cover. Yeah. It, the, the font that was used, but basically, that it was it that that's the font that
0: Vogue magazine used for the for the the magazine Vogue. And, Good um, point. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. Was there ever any kind of you know wrestling or discussion about just having Phil's face on the cover? I don't recall any. No. Yeah. Uh, Would you have wanted that face to be yours? You don't seem like that kind of guy. Like you cared?
1: No, I, I'm. I very
0: much accept
1: that a, a, lead, a lead singer is going to be at the front. That's the person who people are most interested in, you know. And yeah. I've, I was always resigned to that. I was quite happy to be in the background, uh-huh. um, particularly when you're on stage. If you're playing synthesizers, you're you're in the same place that a drummer is and that you've got a barrier between you and everybody else. you know you've got a rack of keyboards or right. a drum kit. you are in the background and there's no getting away from it. If you're at the front with the microphones, you catch people's attention and that's you know that's that that's just how it is. yeah um, there, there are a lot of advantages to being the backroom
0: boy because there's less pressure on it right, right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, It's interesting you say that. Last night I saw the band Spiritualized in concert. Do you know who they are? I don't know. Okay, they're a British band. They've been around for 25 years or something like that. Um, Very kind of druggy, psychedelic a lot of feedback, but also a, so almost a gospel-y feel. The lead singer is this guy, Jason Pierce, who has struggled. Spaceman 3, I think, was the name of his first band, if that rings a bell. Anyway, he's uh, always struggled with drug addiction. <clears throat> and so they his so- these songs are always sort of about transcendence. The music is this, like, you know, cacophonous, feedback-drenched... Heavy sound, but then there's always a like gospel feel to it all. Anyway, the keyboard player was shoved in the back corner um, with like no light on him at all, and you'd forget he was even there. And the way that the stage was set up, there were two guys, the guitarists were both playing sort of on the side of the stage in front of him. Anyway, you'd have to really squint to see if you even saw him up there. And but it, it's in keeping with what you're saying about. You guys are always sort of fading into the background. Even yeah. though Human League is largely a synth, that's what you guys are, you know, but still.
1: I don't think me or Joe Callis would be happy with being completely in the background in darkness. Yeah. <laughs> I think we did, we did enjoy being seen. Good,
0: good. You know. And one thing I thought was interesting about Dare is that in the States, they added the exclamation mark at the end, the exclamation point. Did you, was... Why? That's such an odd thing to do. Well, actually, you, you're telling me something I didn't know. Oh, oh really? really? Yeah. Oh, I, I, do you know, I didn't know that, John. So you, the, you didn't know that it had an exclamation point, or you didn't know that America did it specifically? I'm pretty sure I've seen a, cop, a copy somewhere
1: there with an exclamation mark on it. Do you know, I've never thought about that before.
0: Really? Uh, yeah, I know it didn't have an exclamation mark when we released it here. Yeah. So. Isn't that funny? I've only ever seen it with the exclamation mark, and I've always thought yeah. that was such an odd choice. I mean, all of Human League albums are just single words, but that one had to have the exclamation mark. That and Romantic has a question mark at the end, which is yeah. also a weird, like, why is that? What, what does this mean? You know, but I just... That's, that's interesting because see, I'm not even sure that I've ever seen a
1: copy of dare with an exclamation mark on it. i have noticed uh, a couple of times when i've read things that people put an exclamation mark yeah. after it. so so that's where it comes from john is it that they, they that's what i
0: read getting ready to talk to you yeah so
1: the american it was a and m records in america so they what of their own initiative did they decide just to Put an
0: exclamation mark on it. Yeah, it was to differentiate, you know, for the American market, they added the exclamation mark there at the end. And
1: I don't understand that, John. Why would they want to differentiate? I don't know. I've got, who's interviewing who here? I know.
0: It's, it's, it just seemed like such a strange flourish. Again, I'd never seen it without it. And so I was wondering why it was there, and then come to find out it was just this... Thing Americans tacked on, you know. Uh, I don't know to make it different or to differentiate the American versus the UK release. I don't know, but it just what an odd thing, right?
1: I suppose it does sort of subtly alter the meaning of the word, doesn't it? If maybe. should mark after it. Yeah, maybe that's what they're thinking was, yeah. or maybe it was just someone at A and M felt left out and ought to con- felt they wanted to
0: contribute something. That's, I don't know. Yeah, it, it saves their it, job. No oh that's classic okay side two uh get carter why I just, I, I don't have a problem with Git Carter, but it's a minute long and it's, uh, you know, from the movie, the theme, your you guys' version of it. I just, I've always been curious why, why what went into the thinking of we must put this song on this album? I really don't know. You'd have to ask Philip Oakey. <laughs> <Okay>. Um <laughs> he, he
1: did always used to say that he always thought um, an album ought to have a cover version hmm. somewhere. I think they had done cover... They'd done You've Lost That Loving Feeling. They did um, a cover version of Only After Dark, which uh, was a Mick Ronson Mm -hmm. song. And he he seemed determined that there should be a cover version of something on there. Um, Why he chose Get Carter, I don't know. It's a film that certainly he and Adrian and myself, and I think Joe Catless, it's a film we certainly all liked and admired a lot. So also yeah. it's very, very simple. It is. So it's something,
0: something Philip could do on his own. Yeah. Actually isn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, why, why this? Why this particular hmm. song that's a minute long? Was it, was it padding? Was side two not long enough? And, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was padding. I think that also... Philip did mention me to once about Sergeant Pepper, the Sergeant Pepper album, the Beatles, and how side two started off with a long piece mm. that without much, you know, without any great dynamic to it, which kind of gave you a pause mm-hmm. before, before getting back on with things. So it may it may have been something to do with that. Okay, okay.
0: Um, I want to insert in here one of my listeners is a guy named Kelvin Hayes, who's a music writer and blogger in his own right. And one thing he mentioned when your first episode came out to me, he's British, is how, um, you know, you were talking before about the recording of Dare being on like beautiful summer days and um, how, how nice it was and lovely outside the studio with the green grass and the sun beating down. And yet that album is so heavily associated with winter time because of don't you want me being the Christmas number one and all that kind of stuff. But then Crash being sort of the reverse. Crash is recorded in, you know, this below freezing winter in Minneapolis. But because of when it comes out and starts getting big, we're it's more of a summer summer album. And how that kind of dichotomy is so interesting that you one was recorded in one environment but associated with another and vice versa, you know? Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're
1: not you're not writing with a view to um, when something is is going to be released. You, you just get on with it and we, we, we all you know have um, things we attach to pieces of music are very personal to ourselves. Um, you know it, it may be the, the the point in your life or a particular set of circumstances, that were going on that you constantly associate with that piece of music right. for a lot for me a lot of dare or any human league album is the first thing i see is a whole bunch of synthesizers lying around perched mm-hmm. and all these wires and cables connecting things up and a mixing console you know it's that sort of thing right. and that that's the strongest memory for me of dare but then being able to wander out to get a break when uh, uh, not not needed in the studio. And this beautiful summer, you know, and this yeah. grounds at genetic, and there's a, a swimming pool, which is brilliant. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, of course, as I said before, I, I'm a country boy. I was in my absolute element with that. Yeah. Album, you yeah. know. I think some of the others were pining a bit for the city, but um, I didn't hear any, any huge complaints about it. Okay. Um, but it does remind me of... Uh, you, you, you a band that probably didn't do wasn't so well known in North America but uh, a band called Slade Love had lo- Slade, sure yeah, yeah lots of lots of hit records over here yeah and they did a song uh, a Christmas song um, yeah here it is Merry Christmas everybody I can't remember what the title was now but I think it gets g- it
0: it's classic.
1: Yeah, well, they recorded that. They they recorded it knowing it was going to be released as a Christmas record, but they recorded it. I think it was the Power Station in New York in July. Right.
0: You know, <laughs> you can imagine how you couldn't be less Christmas, right? Oh, that's you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. That's uh, that's such a great visual. Imagining you guys, you know, bopping out to the to the swimming pool, taking a dip when you're not needed in the studio. I I love that. I love thinking about that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's great. I like thinking about the girls in swimsuits too. i got to be honest, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. We'll we'll leave it at that. That's
1: great. I don't remember Susan in the swimming pool. I do remember sitting for quite a long time bobbing up and down in the swimming pool, chatting with with Joanne at one point. Yeah. That
0: is great. I love it um okay I am the law this is another kind of darker you know more menacing and-
3: my life I'm a fool for you you take no advice you think evil doesn't exist just because you it is true
0: Said that this was inspired by Judge Dredd, the comic yeah. book figure. Were you a yeah. comic book reader? I've never been one, but I know that you know with Marvel movies being what they are, it's it couldn't be hotter. Were you a comic book guy?
1: No, I'm not, I wasn't a comic book guy at all. But obviously Philip and Adrian and Joe Callis, they were all very much into comic book stuff and science fiction. Yeah, I I wasn't so much a part of that. So I mean, when Philip was saying our uh, song about, he based it on this character called Judge. Dread. Uh, what was the comic called? 2000 AD, I think it was called. Um, so I asked him if he could show me some copies of it. So then that's the first I saw of okay. Judge Dread. Okay. Um, it, it is actually, I think, Judge Dread not being so much specifically about Judge Dread, but as a, a member of the law, as it were, as it could be any policeman or a detective or you know what I mean some anyone who's upholding the rule of law right. in that sort of a that sort of a capacity so i think you thought that you know it's very very easy to be critical of the police um you know, think of them as a repressive force but of course when your house gets broken into or you know something you like need that
0: one. Yeah. Then,
1: then you want them yes I think it, I think it was Philip just recognizing that, you know, that, that there is the, you know, the positive side to the law.
2: Right.
1: Um, that piece was actually, I say, came from that period around about boys and girls and uh, the things that dreams have made of. Mm. So it, again, that, he started on that before Joe and myself Got it. were involved. And um, it's pretty much, my recollection, is almost entirely Philip. Oh, really? I don't remember any of us, any, any of the rest of us doing anything other than sitting there being encouraging, you know, and saying, that's yeah. sounding great, Philip, you know.
0: Yeah. Okay, seconds. Um, I saw, I've seen Human League in concert probably four or five times. They've all been in the last, like, 15 years or so. I never saw them back in the day. And uh, at one of these shows, and I believe this is Substantiated online everything that this song is was inspired by the JFK assassination. guys? Is Phil so heavily, I don't know, were you bummed out or did, how did it resonate so much that a song needed to be written about it by a British New Wave group? Uh, the, the lyric, the lyrics
1: for that were written by Adrian. Adrian, it's very specific interest of Adrian's was mm. JFK. I remember the first time I ever went round to Adrian's house was surprised to see that a sort of paraphernalia in his house and things hanging on the walls, you know, posters from science fiction films and stuff. And there was this black and white photo, a publicity shot of JFK hanging on hanging on the wall. And I would never um, suggest, or would never think of Adrian as being a politically minded person. He just seemed to have a thing about JFK, huh. that whole um, assassination scenario, I, I don't know why, but the music for that had come really out of, it was like a synthesizer jam, rather than sitting down to write a piece of music. Okay. Uh, mostly Joe Callis again, you know, really? just getting a rhythm going and then jamming these chords over the top. With Dave Allen, who was the assistant engineer, were joining in with it quite a bit, uh-huh. with pro- programming drums and stuff. And a lot of it was cranked out as a jam without Martin Russian being there. He was—he'd gone off into London on business and came back and said, "Oh, this is great, guys," you know. Hmm. And so we pushed on with it, and then Adrian was scribbling down these lyrics about the JFK assassination. Huh. Yeah.
0: Huh. Now, do you know was his fascination like how did who who actually did it? Like the you know the mystery that goes on to this day or is it more the death of a cult of personality or is he just interested in American history or history in general do you know like what facet of it that fascinated him I don't really I can't really speak on Adrian's
1: behalf Um, but I think it's one of those historical events where you it's an event combined with a personality Uh, and a a mystery as well so it's kind of iconic, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's why, why it uh, resides so strongly in Adrian's mind. It's, it's, it's the iconography of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Think, you know, I think, I, as I say, I, I, I can't be certain. That's just my
0: guess. Okay. Uh, I like that. Okay, Love Action, second to last song. You co-wrote this one as well.
3: Just a distraction, no talking. just looking. watching your love action.
0: Love Action and Sound of the Crowd were the first two singles off of this album and they were both ones that you had a hand in. How, I mean... Was your head just spinning? Were you just thinking, I cannot believe you were, you were this sort of local session musician without, you know, I don't know if you had aspirations. You were in that band, Graf, but you, did you have aspirations to be, you know, a pop star? This had to have been blowing your mind. No, I, I didn't, and I still don't
1: have any, um, <laughs> any ambition in terms of music as a career. I just was, they wanted a helping hand, yeah. and so yeah. I said, I'll help out. I mean, with Sound of the Crowd, it was only when we came to do, well, it, the decision to release it as a single was taken before we actually recorded it with Martin Rushand. It was off the back of the demo I'd done, mm-hmm. and then when it was decided... It was, It was. The day, then there was a decision that it was going to be released as a single. We re- recorded it with Martin Rushant and it was only when it came to doing the artwork for the sleeve, and Adrian was taking photos of himself and Philip and the girls, and started to take pictures of me, and that's, that was when I first realised I was a member of the band. So, it's like, so why are you taking pictures of me? And Philip said, because you're in the band. Yeah. Oh fine. Uh, Joe had been working on another piece which became known as Hard Times mm, which, right. <laughs> which was the B side, that was then I think, the B side of Love Action but he, he put down a, a beat onto the magnetic tape to, to sketch an idea onto and he was putting these riffs together which became Hard Times he'd put down about 7 or 8 minutes worth of this beat he sketched his ideas down in the first two or three minutes but then me and Philip were looking for a piece of tape to work on we were very poor and tape was expensive so we were, <laughs> we were, uh-huh. we were just grabbing whichever spools of tape and there was this beat carried on after Joe's hard, um, hard times thing and Philip started doing this synthesised sound, we always called it the cat that meow meow mm-hmm. and, he put that down. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, and then and then um, this was well, this is when um Joe had had let me know that it was permissible to play chords, so I started doing this choppy chord thing on it and then adding the bass part to it and Philip did the cat sound mm-hmm. and, and the very syncopated did and the rest of it was pretty much me. And then
0: Philip that wrote the vocals for. It. Okay. Including there's almost like a uh, a proto- <clears throat> uh, like a pre-rap section in there. You know, rap wasn't necessarily a thing yet that we know today, but there's still that I believe in love part that that he throws in there. Yeah, I mean, when I think about it now, I, was,
1: I thought this the other day when I was listening to it, I thought that's a rap and I never yeah. thought of it. I wouldn't have put that word to it. I just thought that's an interesting thing to do. Yeah. To do a verse where it's almost like it's spoken. I would have said it was just spoken vocal. But of course, these days you'd say that was a rap. Yeah.
0: You know? Good point. Uh, going back to that book, uh, um, Rip It Up and Start Again, I wanted to read a thing in here. This is from Phil. Uh, Love Action is basically two different songs bolted together. The verses from a song called I Believe in Love are confessional nonsense what I was feeling at the time, while the angular not-quite-a-chorus bit is from another song about watching Sylvia Crystal in the softcore erotic movie Emmanuel. Does that ring a bell? No, it doesn't, John. (laughs) (laughs) So didn't uh, influence you in this song, huh? I'm I'm starting
1: to learn a lot about that album. (laughs) No, I I didn't know that at all, no. Um, Okay. I I can see... I always did think it sounded like two slightly separated things, but um, I did something in in the music there was which is normally you would go from a verse to a chorus. You would go up a gear. You know what I mean? You kind yeah. of take uh-huh. it up. You you would lift up into a chorus, and I had this just I suppose being contrary. This idea of what happens if you go the other way. So mm. it actually, in the choruses, it empties out. That's it cool. takes you down. It takes you down rather than up. And again, it's just one of those things, you just, you know, not being clever or anything, it's just a matter of what happens if you do this. Let's see what happens.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, well, and again, like we said, these uh, you had a heavy hand in both these first two singles, and you must have felt like you were... I don't know. You being you, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out kind of who you are as a person. I can't see... I, I don't imagine that you were suddenly going around, you know, with your chest puffed up, like, "Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm writing two of the hottest songs around." Like, or you seem more kind of demure than that. Would I, have, would I have that right?
1: Yeah, I, I would say i, I never felt um, triumphant.
0: Yeah, okay, I, oh,
1: okay. I was kind of more bemused. I, there was a little, I mean, a lot of glowing satisfaction in there inwardly. Just the idea that um, a person like me would be on television yeah. and, pe- you know, people would be playing stuff I did on the radio. Also, it, it kind of makes you... It does make you feel like you've become part of a, a, a sort of an elite section of society, you know, that yeah. you're going to... Te- you, you're invited into television studios and, uh, you know, you're hobnobbing with people like Richard Branson. Right. You, know. so okay. you go, oh... That's interesting. And, you know, you, you can easily start to think, oh, hang about, maybe I'm a really clever, talented person, and that's mm-hmm. why I'm here, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a good idea if you kick that into touch straight away good. and remind good. yourself. You say, okay, one hit record does not make a career, does not make you, you know, a yeah. megastar. This could
0: finish any time now, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 good point. <clears throat> okay, the last track. Um, I mean, uh, you know, it's been talked about a million times over. One thing I was curious about is the sequencing of this album. Um, I, I believe I read somewhere that it was tacked on at the end because that's kind of what Phil thought of it as sort of a. I know that he wasn't a fan of it or of releasing it as a single, and obviously he was proven wrong. But is in the sequencing of the album, is he really sitting there like, uh, let's put this song at the very end? so that they don't even have to listen to it if they don't want to.
1: Yeah, he was he was quite adamant about it. He said, well, yeah, let's tuck that one away at the end. We've got the good stuff out. Um, but he, he thought it was too complex. Well, it is. It's a very complex arrangement for a song. and um, He thought it was too complicated to be a, a hit record. Um, I disagreed with him. I remember we were doing finishing touches to the recording. I've been helping Martin doing uh, drum fills and stuff. And there was a little kitchen area at Genetic Studios. And I was there, and it was just me and Philip making tea, as we do. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, he was saying, What do you reckon on this? He said, I'm not, really not sure about this song. And I said to him, Well, I'm not keen on it. It's not my favourite. Um, I think if the object of the exercise is to have hit singles, then that's the best track on the album. If you're asking me from an artistic point of view, what does it mean in terms of credibility, for me it's the worst song on the album. Um, he agreed with me on that, about the artistic side of it, but he really said he could not see it as a hit single at all. Oh. So, um, and he and Joan and Susan tried to dissuade Virgin from um, releasing it as a single. Clearly, the record label um, just decided, well, you know, they'd yeah. fund the recording. Uh-huh. They effectively had ownership of the recording, and so therefore they would do as they saw fit. Right. I don't think now that anyone... I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the view of Philip and Joanna Susan currently these days. It's, you know, a, lo- uh-huh. a lot of has passed, whether or not they feel that their career has been strangled by that song or not, I don't know. It's certainly, it's a mixed blessing. Yeah. It advanced, it advanced the band's profile hugely, but it is a kind of strange thing to have around your neck. You know, yeah. Um, there's so many people know the band for that one song.
0: Um, yeah, I think but, I, I can only speak for myself and um, I, I maybe a casual person who, you know, isn't a big audiophile, isn't paying like close attention. If you were, you know, if I were to go to my mom or my mom's friends or something like that, hey, the Human League, who was that again? And then I play them. Oh, sure. I remember that song. But yeah. if you were paying attention like I would have been at the time, especially to you guys, there's... 10 other hits you know there's 10 other songs that you heard on the radio there's mirror man you know that you had a hand in there's fascination there's human there's heart like a wheel there's uh you know it keeps going tell me when uh these are all songs that if you're paying attention you remember these tracks you know yeah i i I think that it is um there is a
1: division between those who um digest music in the form of hit records, true. Uh, others who actually take an interest in a particular artist or band or a whole series of artists and what have you. I mean, I can, I can name every track ever recorded by Pink Floyd. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but you speak to people and they go, "Oh, that's the one with the girl wailing over the top of the piano,"
0: right. or the one with the cath registers, or you know, right, right, yeah. Who uh, knows what yeah. in- embeds itself but, in yeah. casual people's but, minds. I did go and
1: see the Human League live quite a long time ago uh, around about i think around about two thousand and two mm-hmm. um, because they were playing a show at Newmarket Racecourse, and I thought I had to go because I live not far from there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I thought this is an interesting demographic it's a race a meeting at a racecourse, so there's like I think half a dozen horse races yeah. Followed by the Human League playing. And um, I stood in the audience and they played, I would think, somewhere between an hour and an hour and a quarter. And I thought, you know, every song they've played has been some sort of hit record. Right. Yeah. I thought there's not that many bands could do
0: that, really.
1: No, no. And when you add it all together,
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, two things. Number one, I used to live in Cambridge and I remember Newmarket. That wasn't too far from us. Yeah. Um, uh, I had friends in Bodisham, and I think if yeah. I remember right, Newmarket is pretty close to Bodisham, right? Yeah. But Newmarket's just to the to the east of Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. Um, and secondly, you know, you saying that I, I again, I've seen them several times, too. And I it's not even at this point, I don't know that they even have to close with Don't You Want Me. You know, if they if they played it in the middle of their set, you would still be anticipating what that last song could be. I think I've seen them play and close with several different things. Sometimes it's together yeah. in Electric Dreams. You know, it could be anything. Well, I
1: can't remember what they closed with at Newmarket, except it wasn't Don't You Want Me, because they didn't do it. They didn't oh. do Don't You Want Me, until there was enough applause for an encore that came back on. <laughs> And then Philip said down
0: his microphone, okay, then, here you go. Here's Don't You Want Me. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, how integral do you think the video was? Because, yes, video, I mean, the song MTV launches in 1980, August of 1981. You're, this is a hit a few months later. I don't know if MTV is big enough thing. Nowadays, we associate it so heavily with the video, but... Were they feeding one another at the time? Do you think that song would have still been what it was without this interesting video that was, you know, more polished and more cinematic than all the other videos at the time?
1: I I don't know, John. It certainly helped because um, that was the very early days of MTV. And uh, actually, Simon Draper, we mentioned before, the (laughs) managing director of, of the Virgin Record label, Brought this guy along to the studio one day when we were working. He paid us a visit and he had this guy in tow, who said was part of starting up this um, this new TV network called MTV. We'd never heard of it, but obviously Simon Draper had um, got his brain keyed in to this concept, and that's why he was quite prepared to put Virgin money up okay. front to do uh, to do this video. Um, so, okay, yeah, I think it got quite heavy rotation on MTV. So that that must have raised our profile quite yeah. a lot. Okay.
0: Yeah. I read something else where you guys refused to perform on Solid Gold because you would have had to have had the Solid Gold dancers dancing around you. Does this ring a bell? It does ring a bell. I didn't refuse to, to do it, but uh, it was uh, Joan and Susan strongly
1: objected. And so Philip backed them up on it okay I mean I mean I I I wouldn't have liked the idea Mm of the dancers on there um it's too it's that's that sort of thing that's more about television than about music you know and I think I think we really wanted to be thought of as music and not tv entertainment but you know
0: you have to do a certain amount of that obviously yeah yeah yeah. well that's it that's the (laughs) end of dare one of the most influential albums ever and uh, you're on it and you participated mightily <laughs> it's never the end of day <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never been able to get away from it
1: actually where I live in in sort of rural England um, people around here don't care most people have never even heard of it and um, wow. so I'm, I'm you know quite happy about that but you know there was it was Marshall McLuhan who said you know, everybody uh, in the future will be famous for 15 minutes. Yeah.
0: It, it's often attributed to Andy Warhol, but in fact it was Marshall McLuhan. Really? I was just going to correct yeah. You. Yeah. you. You know this. Okay, interesting. Because
1: now I've read Marshall McLuhan, kind of the godfather of demographics, and it was definitely him who said it. Okay. Andy okay. Warhol quoted him and said, yes, everyone will be famous for 15 Got minutes it. in the future. It turns out to be Apt, quite true, but what they didn't know at the time was that that fifteen minutes of fame could have such a long, long reverberation, you know. And um so it's still it's odd because I only spent six seven years with the human League, which means I've spent more than fifty years not being in the human. League. And yet, and yet, you know, I end up sitting here talking to you about it, John, you know?
0: Well, uh, I'm eternally (laughs) grateful. And I hope hope it wasn't too painful. I just, uh, I mean, I love you guys, and uh, I loved our interview before, and I just wanted to shine a light, you know? I heard from so many people when you came on about how grateful they were, a gift. That was one of my listeners was like, what a gift, having this out there. And I just thought, let's give them another gift, you know?
1: yeah well i'm glad you did i've enjoyed it john good good um i'd say my memory's not that great but but you've got a way of um
0: jogging it (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i'm glad uh again thanks for doing this there you have it dare with ian burden hope you guys enjoyed that and i hope if you i mean i think everyone knows at least the hits from this album but if you haven't heard this whole album for a while or you haven't paid attention to the Human League for a long time, hopefully this inspired you to pick that back up, because those guys are the best. Um, Next month, I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do, because (laughs) as I've mentioned before, we've had a lot of people respond favorably to being willing to come back and do this with me. So, Marco Peroni is on tap. Kevin Armstrong is still out there. Phil Spaulding from GTR is still out there, except he just got married, so that may take a little while. Anyway, we've had numer- Mike Lindup from Level 42 has agreed to come back. So I'm not exactly sure which one we're going to do just yet. But um, lots of people have agreed to come back and do these with us. And I think they're a lot of fun. I hope you guys do too. Anyway, thanks to Yan. Thanks to all you guys. We'll talk to you later.